Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out this new series on the birth, life, and death of the Neo-Hittite kingdoms. For maps, family trees, and images related to each episode, please go to ancientworldpodcast.com or visit the Facebook page for The Ancient World. And if you enjoy the series, please remember to leave a review on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. No shortage of praise for his older brother. The gods of his father ran before my brother, and he conquered the enemy tribal troops. He killed them. When he had conquered the tribal troops, the land of the enemy saw him, and they were afraid. All the land of Arziah and the land of Carchemish made peace with him. In the land of Carchemish, Carchemish itself, as the only city, did not make peace with him. Carchemish didn't resist out of pride, though it had every right to do so. Whether its current residents had the slightest clue, the city basked in a golden age of independence under an earlier king named Aplahanda, whose letters to Zimri Lim of Mari had called him simply brother. But no, Carchemish's current resistance was in service to a higher power, King Tushrata of the Hurrian kingdom of Mitanni. In fact, in 1327 BC, Carchemish may have been the last Mitanni holdout west of the Euphrates. It was also sighted at an important river crossing. So the city's defenders were told to stand fast to protect the Mitanni heartland. Though the campaign had been proceeding quite splendidly under Prince Arnuwanda, the moment possessed sufficient gravity to engage the Hittite king. In his later account, his son introduces him as Supaluliuma, king of Hatti, hero, which pretty much covers all the bases. I mean, this was the guy who'd helped his father defeat the Kazga and retake the imperial capital of Hattusas, then conspired to kill his older brother to seize the Hittite throne. And now he was poised to crush an empire that had dominated the region for generations. No river, no city, and no desperate holdouts would keep him from his prize. His son records that 
After an eight-day siege, followed by a day-long battle, Supaluliuma captured Carchemish. He was respectful enough of the city gods, particularly its main goddess Kubaba, that he steered well clear of the major temples. But that pretty much emptied out his mercy tank. The king took captive silver, gold, and bronze and carted them off to Hattusas. The loss was considered sufficiently dire for Mitanni nobles to kill their own king, Tushrata, and place his brother on the throne as King Shutarna III. Maybe they were hoping to use their new figurehead to try to sue for peace. If so, those hopes were immediately dashed, because Supaluliuma had already found them a king, an exiled son of the slain Tushrata by the name of Shatiwaza who also just happened to be Supaluliuma's new son-in-law. It's funny how things work out sometimes. The rest proceeded mostly by the book, a Hittite drive to the capital of Washukani and installation of a Hittite puppet on the throne of fading Mitanni. In the wake of the victory, Supaluliuma spread his sons out like a tarot deck and read them all their fates. I already touched on two sons earlier. The oldest, Arnuwanda, was the fearsome general who'd led the Syrian campaign. Unsurprisingly, he'd continued to serve as tip of the spear and designated heir. There was also the youngest prince, who'd eventually write down all these events in a work called The Deeds of Supaluliuma I. His name was Mursili, the future King Mursili II, though around this time his prospects for advancement looked nowhere near that bright. There was a third son named Telipinu, who was installed as the Hittite sub-king, or viceroy, of the Syrian city of Aleppo. And there was a fourth son by the name of Piasili. According to the text of a later treaty, it was Piasili who'd escorted Shatiwaza across the Euphrates and led that part of the Hittite army that had placed him on the throne. As his reward, Mursili records that Subaluliuma gave the land of Carchemish and the city of Carchemish to Piasili to govern, and made him a special king. In this context, the land of Carchemish included territories along both banks of the upper Euphrates, along with Syrian lands approaching the coast. This was a significant bequest, and one that was mostly left to Piasili to organize and rule. As a token nod to its Hurrian residents, Piasili began his reign by adopting the Hurrian name of Shari Kushu though I'm going to keep calling him Piasili. But a name change was the easiest item on his to-do list. A reasonable starting point for me, you, and him was to get the lay of the land. East of Carchemish, as we just discussed, was the Hurrian kingdom of Mitanni. The kingdom's origins are insanely interesting, but don't have much bearing on the current story. So I'll just mention that sometime around 1600 BC, Indo-Aryan speakers from Central Asia migrated to northern Syria, where they used their superior military skills to dominate the local Hurrians. 
Their kingdom expanded in the political vacuum left by the Hittite destruction of Yom Kadd. And by the time the Egyptians and Hittites returned, Mitanni was a force to be reckoned with. After being a major power for centuries, this latest conflict reduced Mitanni to its irreducible core. The royal capital of Washukani and nearby territories in the Kabur and Balak river valleys. Hittite domination was a bitter pill, but the situation was actually quite a bit worse. Because once, when they'd been riding high, the Mitanni decided to humiliate Assyria. And now a resurgent Assyria, thirsty for land and hungry for revenge, paced along Mitanni's southeastern border. West of Carchemish, approaching the Orontes, were the former Mitanni territories of Aleppo and Nuhashi, the former ruled by Piasili's brother, Telepinu. Across the Orontes, approaching the coast, was the ancient territory of Amuru. South of Amuru, along the Orontes, was the kingdom of Kadesh, while north of Amuru, along the coast, was the major port of Ugarit. Most of these were independent kingdoms, bound to the Hittites by treaties and oaths, but their obedience had to be continually coerced or bought. The kingdoms had the most free reign when they could play major powers off one another, which usually meant the powers of Hatti and Egypt. In fact, the boy king currently ruling Egypt, the pharaoh, oh, let me see here, Tutankhamun, had recently tried to reclaim Kadesh while the Hittites were taking Carchemish. But the attempt had failed, and his forces returned to Egypt. So, on the bright side, Piasili was able to execute his program with very little pushback. That program being, in basic terms, to replace the former imperial apparatus of the Mitanni kingdom with that of the Hittite empire. Which meant an influx of scribes, clerks, priests, officials, and lots and lots of soldiers. Before we close out the current theme, we've got one more brother to deal with, the Hittite prince Zananza. And while he may have been happy to just chill at court, the fates had other plans. Two years after the Hittite victory, Tutankhamun of Egypt died. His widowed queen and half-sister, Ankesenamun, wrote to the I with a very unusual request. Mersili recorded the contents of her letter. He who was my husband has died. There is no son for me. I do not want to take a servant of mine and make him my husband. They say your sons are plentiful for you. Give me one of your sons. To me he will be husband, but in the land of Egypt he will be king. Supaluliuma was absolutely blown away. No one had ever heard of an Egyptian royal lady being given in marriage to a foreign prince, ever, under any circumstances. And this union obviously promised much more, the possibility of extending Hittite control over Egypt. 
What the Hittite king had accomplished already was enough to earn him lasting fame. But claiming two major empires in the space of two years, that's Cyrus the Great-level magic. After confirming the offer was actually genuine, Supaliliuma told his son Zananza to head down south and claim his royal bride. Alas, it was just not fated to be. Approaching the border, Zananza was met by an Egyptian force under the senior general Horemheb, and word soon came, in the words of Mursili, that the people of Egypt had killed Zananza. When Supaliliuma heard of the murder of Zananza, he began to weep for his son. And, of course, once the weeping ended, it was time for a total war. Zananza's older brother, Arnuwanda, was once again the tip of the spear, and his chariots rolled into southern Syria to attack Egyptian vassals. The new pharaoh, Tutankhamun's former vizier, Ai, was somehow able to weather the storm and forestall an invasion of Egypt proper. Supaliliuma eventually called off the assault, and Arnuwanda returned with slaves and plunder back to the capital of Hattusas. The real legacy of this brief campaign took some time to reveal itself, but when it did, the effect was utterly devastating. Over the next four years, a mysterious plague brought back from Syria began to ravage the Hittite Empire. Claiming the lives of both Subaluliuma and his eldest son and chosen successor, the Hittite prince Arnuwanda. During Arnuwanda's brief time in power, he'd enlisted the aid of his younger brother, Mursili, in fighting enemies to the north and west. And when Arnuwanda died in 1321 BC, Mursili ascended the throne. The change was apparently met with delight by various enemies at home and abroad, who soon broke out into open revolt against the young, untested king. Mursili himself recorded their contempt. You are a child. You know nothing and instill no fear in me. Your land is now in ruins, and your infantry and chariotry are few. Your father had many infantry and chariotry, but you, who were a child, how can you match him? I know that's a pretty sick burn, and Mursili probably had to go inside and slather on some alicane. But even though it took some time, Mursili eventually silenced the doubters and proved himself to be a capable ruler. A few years into Mursili's reign, his older brother, King Piasili of Carchemish, received a royal summons. Mursili ordered him to come up north and join the fight against his greatest enemy, King Uhaziti of Arzawa. Arzawa was an Anatolian territory approaching the central Aegean coast, roughly comparable to classical Lydia and Caria, with its capital at Apasa, classical Ephesus. Uhaziti allied himself with a mysterious figure called the King of Ahiyawa. And for Ahiyawa, you can read Achaean, 
Because what we're likely talking about here is a Mycenaean king back on the Greek mainland who controlled a strip of Anatolian coastline from a base at Milawata, classical Miletus. That control was exercised through a local lord with the local body of Mycenaean troops, who were now supporting Arzawa against the Hittites. As the Hittite army approached the coast, both Piacili and Mursili got to witness a pretty amazing sight. Mursili recorded that the mighty storm god, my lord, showed his divinely righteous power and hurled a thunderbolt. All of my troops saw the thunderbolt. All of the land of Arzawa saw the thunderbolt. The thunderbolt passed us and struck the land of Arzawa. It struck Uhazidi's capital city, Apasa. Which is sometimes taken to mean that a flaming meteor plunged through the sky and struck the city of Ephesus. Meteor or no, King Uhazidi was apparently wounded and was forced to place the Arzawan army in the hands of his son, Piyama Karunta. But, as we all know, a meteor strike can be bad for morale, and Hittite forces under Mursili and Piasili easily won the day. The Arzawan and Ahiawan courts were forced to seek refuge on one of the offshore islands. After Uhaziti died of his injuries, Mursili convinced the lord of Ahiawa to surrender the king's son, Piyama Karunta. Once he did, Mursili had him clamped in chains and dragged right off to Hattusas. He then carved Arzawa up into the three vassal kingdoms of Mira, Hapala, and Seha Riverland. The Ahiawans remained in the region, and a few decades later, regained control of Miletus. At the end of the campaign, Piacili bid farewell to his younger brother and headed back down to Carchemish. So, how was the Hittitization of northern Syria coming along? Pretty darn well, thanks for asking. There was the predictable influx of Hittite nobles and royal administrators, along with the parallel influx of Hittite soldiers to garrison regional strongpoints. There was also another significant component, the local resettlement of various groups from across the Hittite Empire. To understand the nature of these settlers, we need to have a very short primer on the core and crux of Hittite identity, the Hittite capital of Hattusas. The city was originally known as Hattush and was home to a people called the Hatti, or the people of Hattush who spoke the Hattic language and called their land the Land of Hatti. According to historian David Anthony, central Anatolia was dominated by Hattic speakers, who'd founded cities and established kingdoms and palace cults. But, and here's where the confusion starts, these people had zero connection to the Hittites. Sometime later, around 2000 BC, Groups of Indo-European speakers started entering Anatolia across the Bosporus. Over the next few centuries, they settled the region in increasing numbers, sometimes displacing the previous inhabitants, mainly the Hatti, as well as the local Hurrians. 
Both the Hatti and Hurrians spoke relatively isolated languages, without much connection to broader groups. But the Indo-European immigrants, like their name suggests, belonged to a language group that would eventually branch out into many of the languages spoken today between India and Western Europe. The immigrants entering Anatolia spoke three distinct Indo-European languages. The two most important were Luwian, spoken by the vast majority, and a second language called either Neshite or Hittite. Actually, we have no idea what this second group may have originally called themselves or their language, but they first came to prominence in the old Assyrian colony of Kanesh, hence Neshite. And before too long, a group of Neshites took control of Hattusas, in the region still known as Hatti. Once they became a regional power, their local rivals started calling them Hittites, which again just basically meant the people of Hattusas, or the people of the land of Hatti. Wow, Scott, I've got to be honest, that was pretty confusing and also kind of boring. I know, but hear me out, because the background is kind of important. Okay, so we've displaced or assimilated the Hatti and Hurrians, and we have a new population which is mostly Luwian speakers, along with this smaller group, the Neshites or Hittites, who were kind of the movers and shakers. From their time at Kanesh, the Hittites adopted Assyrian cuneiform to write their language. From the earlier Hatti, according to Anthony, the Hittites borrowed words for throne, lord, king, queen, heir, priest, and a long list of palace officials and cult leaders. From their base at Hattusas, they began to expand via military conquest to control the surrounding region. So now you've got the Hittite Old Kingdom bounded by the loop of the Hollis River and along the Black Sea coast by a fearsome tribe called the Kazka. Beyond the Hollis, to the west, south, and east, were lands dominated by Luwian speakers, who were not necessarily super excited about joining their Hittite neighbors. During the following centuries, these peripheral territories alternated periods of alliance and submission with periods of conflict and rebellion. We've already talked about Arzawa, to the west of the Hittite heartland. South of the Hollis, approaching the Mediterranean and northwest Syria, was a region called Kizawadna. Its population was a mix of Hurrians and Luwian speakers, and its capital was at Tarza, classical Tarsus. The kingdom had been dominated by Mitanni, then by the Hittites, before taking a recent stab at independence. Supaluliumid crushed the rebellion and restored imperial control. But it didn't solve the larger issue how to better integrate the Luwian periphery with the Hittite imperial core. According to Bryce, it was under the current king, Mursili II, that a novel practice emerged. Hittite military records report the deportation of tens of thousands of persons from conquered states, including those of western and southern Anatolia, to the homeland and its peripheral areas. 
Here they were used for service with the Hittite king and his landowning officers, for restocking the workforces of agricultural estates, for reinforcing military garrisons in frontier regions, and for building up the population in subject territories. In fact, Mursili deported around 65,000 people during the Arzawan campaign alone. While the Assyrians often get credited as the original architects of mass deportations, that distinction really belongs to the Hittites. What I'm driving at here is that once Supaliliuma conquered Mitanni lands, then Mursili enacted this deportation policy, large populations of Luwian speakers were resettled in northern Syria. At the moment, the process was overseen by Mursili's brother, King Piasili of Carchemish. But it would also continue at varying levels across the next few centuries. In 1315 BC, a dozen years after assuming his post, Piasili faced his first real crisis. Two minor kings of the land of Nuhashi, between the Euphrates and Orontes rivers, went into revolt. They were joined by King Itakama of the city of Kadesh. Piasili had a few tricks in his diplomatic pouch and engineered the overthrow of one Nuhashi king by his brother. But things didn't really settle down until Mursili came south with the Hittite army, defeated the second Nuhashi king, and reasserted control over Kadesh. He then tried to fix things by shifting a few lands around and tinkering with a few local dynasties. But unfortunately, the moment he left, the revolt flared right back up. This time, things were a bit more dire. The new Egyptian pharaoh was the former general Horemheb, the killer of Mursili's brother, Zananza and he sent a body of Egyptian troops to actively support the rebellion. King Mursili was otherwise occupied, so he dispatched some troops under his general Kantuzili to help to even the odds. With this support, his brother Piasili was able to drive the Egyptians out of Syria and quash the Second Revolt. But regional tensions remained at a constant simmer. Two years later, Piasili and Mursili's brother, King Telipinu of Aleppo, died. Mursili appointed Telipinu's son, Talmi Sharuma, to take up his role. He also summoned Piasili up north to discuss affairs of state. Mursili was engaged in an extended campaign against the northern kingdom of Hayasa Azi, and the two men met at the midpoint city of Kumani. Mursili may have hoped to strategize with his brother about a long-term solution to the Syrian problem. But a short time into their visit, Piasili became ill and died. The moment they learned the viceroy was dead, Nuhashi and Kadesh went back into revolt. Even as he was mourning his brother, Mursili dispatched his general Karunta who rolled into Syria, ravaged the territory of Nuhashi, killed King Itakama of Kadesh, and replaced him with his son, Prince Nikmadu. Which, finally, put an end to the Syrian rebellions. Oh, except 
During all the chaos, the Assyrian king Enlil-Nirari crossed the Euphrates and captured the city of Carchemish. In retrospect, I guess it wasn't that much of a shocker. The city's viceroy had just died, and Mitanni was still a Hittite vassal, so no one was really expecting an attack from the east. At the same time, after decades of Mitanni domination, the Assyrians wanted to let it be known that they were still a force to be reckoned with. But, to be honest, they really weren't. At least not yet. They were clearly no match for the Hittite army, and Mursili personally came to Carchemish to drive the Assyrians out. In the aftermath, he appointed Piasili's son, Sahuru Nuash, as the new king of Carchemish, just like he'd appointed Telipinu's son to rule in nearby Aleppo. Mursili spent the next two years pressing the attack on Hayasa Azi, and just like with Arzawa years before, he got some surprising help from on high. As Mursili was making preparations for the year's campaign, the sky above turned totally black. He recorded that the sun gave a sign. But what Mursili and his army actually witnessed was a total solar eclipse. Which means we actually have a real hard date. June 24, 1312 BC, in the middle of the afternoon. Just like with the earlier meteor strike, Mursili took it as a positive sign, and the year's campaign was largely a Hittite victory. The following year, his general Nuwanza finally ended the conflict. Though he'd rule for another 16 years, the Hittite conquest of Hayasa Azi was the capstone of Mursili's reign. As the 14th century came to a close, the Hittites remained the most powerful Near Eastern Empire. Mursili was entering his third decade in power and had numerous children by his wives Gasuluwaya and Tenuhepa, including two full-grown sons named Muatali and Hatusili. He also had two royal nephews, Sahuru Nuwash and Talmi Sharuma, ruling in Carchemish and Aleppo. While the Mitanni kingdom had been thoroughly defanged, the Syrian lands it had once controlled were not yet fully Hittite, which left them open to potential conquest by a bold new Egyptian dynasty. Mm -hmm. 